Welcome to the second series of Batonnage, a podcast of stirring and stimulating discussions about wine. Hosted by Liam Stevenson, a master of wine, who, with his team at Vineyard Productions, makes wine in France, Spain and New Zealand, and offers international consultancy through Global Wine Solutions, and Guardian wine columnist, journalist and author Fiona Beckett, publisher of MatchingFoodAndWine.com. In this episode, Liam and Fiona talk to Brett Ellis, a founder and head brewer of Wild Beer, a brewery based in Somerset, who in under a decade have built a reputation enjoyed globally for their wild beers. So this week we are talking about beer for a change uh, rather than uh, wine, and that's because we've got uh, Brett Ellis, the We've been trying to work out what exactly it is that you are. We, we think you're the head brewer. You might be the executive brewer or the director of the Wild Beer Company. What, what do you like to be called, yeah. Brett? Uh, I, I, I like to make things. I like to make food. The, head, the, the like maker in chief. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> the maker in chief. Okay. So I've known Wild Beer for, for ages, uh, since you started in 2012, was it? Yeah. That's right. And... I've always been an absolutely huge fan. You know, it's just outside Bristol, so you're on um, our doorstep. Um, but how did it all happen? T- tell, us, tell us the story of how, how uh, the company came into being. Yeah, so how the company came into being is uh, I was working at a brewery called um, here in Bristol, uh, the Bristol Beer Factory, kind of cutting my teeth and learning how to how to make beer. And, um, and I had a, a very... I came out of the um, cooking world where I taught. Now, I didn't teach myself, but I looked at those who were around me as my professors, so I, I focused on it very intently. You were a chef? Uh, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. I've actually hit the tipping point where I've been a brewer longer than a chef now, mm-hmm. so I don't know if I can be a chef anymore. No, you were. <laughs> yeah. so, so your background was... was yes, in, was in making food experiences. And, uh, and, and, and the kind of cooking I did really can see in the brewery and the beers we make because the cooking I did was more the, or the restaurants I worked at and the chefs I worked under were um, chefs that in restaurants where you went to on payday or you went to once a year, um, you went there for special, special moments. They weren't your um, Tuesday night. I can't be asked to cook dinner uh, or office lunch necessarily. Mm -hmm. So they were those kind of special moments, experiences on a dinner plate and service and ambiance and all that. And this, judging by your accent, was in the US? Yeah. 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 So uh, that's whereabouts? Yeah. So that was in California. Yeah. So I grew up in the Central Valley, mm-hmm. which is farmland. Yeah. Um, and then uh, that's where I started cooking. And then I went to the Central Coast, um, Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo area, where I worked for a French catering chef and we did a lot of wine club dinners okay. at the wineries and their barrel rooms and stuff. It was an amazing experience and that really awakened my uh, my senses to drink, to, to the flavor that you can get from it. And, uh, and I think I took those kind of creating special moments out of food um, and apply it to making beer. Okay. Um, so we, although we do have kind of everyday beers, they're slightly avant-garde, like passion fruit, orange, and guava, pale ale. Yeah, it's not Is just a pale ale. Poga? Yeah. Yeah. Poga. Yeah. So why did you come to the UK? Uh, my wife. Okay. My wife. Yeah. Uh, 15 years ago, almost to the day, we met in Northern Ireland. Right. And uh, on a gap year, and we were traveling and saw each other in the back of a cab. And, and she's English. And she's English. Yeah. yeah. She's English from Bristol area, yeah. mostly. Um, and uh, I'm really glad she's from this area rather than some other area of Britain. I'm not going to name anywhere. <laughs> but, um, We're glad she's from this area. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And, uh, and, and so moving over here, I didn't have any connections to the food scene in England. And if you think of 12 years ago, which is when I moved over, Bristol's food scene was in its kind of infancy. Uh, it wasn't all over the place. There wasn't... Uh, uh, an energy about it, and my my family that I moved in with, with Jen's family, my wife's family, her friends, and all they weren't necessarily foodies. Yeah. Um, so I found it really difficult. So 
uh, someone gave me uh, their home brewing equipment so I could pass some time and uh, and because I wasn't allowed to work past some time um, and I just got hooked. Um, brewing beer is a natural evolution of of cooking. Fantastic. Absolutely. It's you raw and better the, the better the raw ingredients, the attention to detail on the recipe and the uh, process and um, and stepping back and letting those things speak for themselves will generally create a great product. Sure. A great beer, a great experience. Um, gotta not use the word product, don't we? <laughs> We're not making wins here, but um, sometimes it's where I de- default to. So when did the wild beer idea come into Yeah, yeah, kind of diverted there. Um, it really, probably eight years ago, eight and a half years ago, um, I had started working at the Bristol Beer Factory a few years before, been yeah. learning how to make beer, really progressed very quickly because I was reading and doing a lot of beer myself. And at the same time, there's a guy there called Andrew Cooper. Okay. And he's my uh, business partner, um, and I'm his. <laughs> um, and we we had a natural synergy of wanting to do... I, I had done food... Um, events and he had uh done some food beer events so we started doing some uh beer and food dinners at flinty red um uh with matt the chef there and it started snowballing and that relationship really started snowballing the attraction to flavor and experience and um we we saw that people are hungry for something different in not just um uh, 20 versions of brown ale and 20 versions of yellow fizzy ale, yeah. uh, lager even. Um, and so let's push those boundaries and let's be a part, let's be part of that wave, something new happening. Maybe not be as presumptuous as that we can cause it or but let's just be a part of it. Okay. Um, or parts of it. Uh, and that was, that was eight years ago that we started the business plan and Okay, so conniving. Because you're unusual in that your company name really does define what you do, right? And yeah. That's quite unusual to mm-hmm. define. I mean, excuse me, yes. it's something you have to live up to all the time. It's be challenging too. It's frustrating. <laughs> uh, and um, um, we like to put a lot of rods in our back. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of them. But luckily, uh, it was, it's one that it only defines us to those that know what that is, yeah. um, which is a niche of a niche. Um, to a lot of people, wild, uh, one, re- one, how do I say this? Uh, like when we started, how about, to answer the question, why did we call it wild beer? If I can do that. Yeah. Um, we wanted, not only were we enamored and intrigued and curious about actual quote unquote wild beers, um, but we also were wanting to be have an influence that was larger than Somerset, um, larger, and, and so we thought to ourselves, we'll probably let's be a British brewery, and then we're like, well, got to have a little bit bigger audience because there's not that much sour and wild beer being drunk in Britain, so let's be a European brewery, and um, and so we started looking at names and things, and and one name other than uh, it, this name really struck a chord with us the core of who we are because we make sour and wild beer, but also which country, demographic, um, gender, walk of life cannot connect to being wild, mm-hmm. wants to be wild, or wants to be associated, wants to get into the wild, sure. um, wants to value the wild. Um, Even Theresa May running across the wheat field. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so so that, that was something that we wanted to be able to be pronounceable in other countries, uh, connect to them, and not be Somerset Brewery Barrels or something. So actually, in in reverse to what I said a second ago, um, to a lot of consumers, maybe they see the words wild beer and have no expectation of what that might mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that right? That's right. But you probably do, as probably defines you maybe more than the consumer. Yeah, and we can get bogged down often yeah. by thinking of the bubble, by being in the bubble, yeah. that we got to live up to the wild beer name 
of being sour and barrel-aged or avant-garde or pushing the boundary. But really, my neighbor to the left of me, they, for them, Wild is an American pale ale that is bitter and stronger and really aromatic. But my neighbor to the right of me, a Wild beer is one that's got cucumbers and is sour. Okay. Um, so it's kind of everybody's wild is different to them. So it's, it's relative. That's what I like about it. So within the industry, the wild beer is not a category as such. Within the industry, I think it probably would be categorized as sour or mixed fermentation. Okay. Would probably be the broadest stroke, I'd probably say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So are you always working with wild yeasts? We, we are always working with wild yeast in the sense of we always have stuff on the go. Um, mm-hmm. We have a barrel library or barrel cellar of about 500 oak barrels um, for uh, larger oak fooders, uh, one even larger one. Um, so we always have it, have it on the go. And it's always a focus. Um, but we also have beers that are single yeast strain, much more controlled intentional. Um, Can I just dial us back one second and yeah. ask what's, what is a wild yeast to people that don't know? What does that mean? What does that mean to you? Mm. It's oh. a good, good question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I should have probably thought of before <laughs> you asked me that. Um, because there, there isn't a real clear definition that at least I necessarily adhere to when yeah. I think of wild yeast, because probably seven years ago, wild yeast was mostly Britannomyces. Um, it used to be a wild yeast, but now we've cultured a single cell colony and propagated it up and are able to avoid it because we have studied it or we're able to use it because we've st- started to study it. Um, and. I think wild yeasts are those that are not conventional yeast used for fermentation in okay. in, dis, in drinks industry. Does that make sense? Not, not made in a factory somewhere. That's right. Yeah. Or yeah. more than that, because I mean, because I mean, because what you're suggesting that it's not just that it's not an, a non-inoculated yeast. It's not just an amb- an ambient yeast. It's also a yeast which, in its activity, sends ferment in a different direction. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I I think if I could maybe have a go at answering it again. I would define wild yeast as a yeast that is not a typical lager yeast yeah. or a typical wine yeast or a typical ale yeast. Um what and it's it's a pretty broad stroke statement there. Yeah. In the same way that I think beer is simply a fermented grain beverage. So it doesn't need hops. It, it doesn't need malted barley. Um, I think industrial drink production, it, it's, it's kind of counter-industrial drink production. So we make some of those beers because we like to drink those beers. Yeah. Uh, and wine, we don't make the wines, but and wines, but... Uh, but we love natural ones, um, and so wild yeast is that that those yeasts that fly in the face of those consistent, replicatable. Mm-hmm. Um, you propagate this yeast, you know exactly what you're going to get. Yeah. You can harvest this in brewing terms. You can harvest this yeast, and you can re-pitch it into another batch yeah. nine to ten times before you start getting flavor variances. But with wild yeast, any Britannomyces or locally harvested yeast, because you could harvest a Saccharomyces cerevisiae, sure. which is a brewer's yeast, in the wild, and then propagate it in a lab, in a uh, in a lab. And so, does that make it not wild anymore? Or once you buy it, does that what makes it not wild? I'm not sure because they might have only harvested it. 12 months ago off of the skins of grapes. Yeah. Um, and even you propagate things in your own cellar, I suppose. In so, our own cellar, yeah. in our own lab. Yeah. Um, in a, so, a repetition of barrels or lots of things. So, yeah. That's why my answer, I feel, is, is annoyingly broad. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose in that most, if you think of most wine producers, I'm sure the same with beer, is that most most activities is risk management. How do you avoid, how do you reduce risk to be sure of an outcome? And what you yeah. do is embrace risk and go on the journey mm-hmm. of that outcome. Is uh, that right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So when we set up the brewery, this is uh, Andrew and my personalities, uh, or, or like I say, uh, I used to say, we set the brewery up so that we could brew modus operandi. This this is a beer called Modus Operandi um, that we make, and it is our MO. Um, it is a beer that is barrel aged in two different types of barrels, and um, then we're we're inoculating or pitching Britannomyces to bring out a cherry kind of character, and then we blend it. And the beer is not there until we blend it because the wine barrel, yeah. So can we can we try it? Oh, oh yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, let's do that. I'm uncomfortably th- thirsty for midday in yeah. January. Yeah, but I... <laughs> Britannomyces, Fiona, what do you think? Britannomyces, it's kind of like a dirty word in the wine business. Yeah. You know, I mean, Brett, you know, we, we catch you, this is why we've got you um, on the podcast, we just want you a podcast that was called Brett on Brett. <laughs> but um, yeah, Brett is a, is a dirty word in the wine business. It's kind of not admired in much in um, in wines. You know, it's regarded as a fault. Whereas here is um, a whole brewery dedicated to elevating it as its raison d'etre. I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you know much of the history of um, Brett in wine, or, or, not, or not that I can give it to you now, but. The, um, I remember very clearly, sort of in the sort of 80s and 90s, some of the great wines that came particularly out of the Rhone Valley, the most famous would be one called Chateau de Bocastel, which was a Chateau Neuf de Pau. Highest priced wine in this category, loved by everybody for its kind of um, incredibly complex aromas and flavours. And then all of a sudden they realised it was all caused by a spoilage yeast of sort or wild yeast. <laughs> and they cleaned the whole thing up and then the wine didn't taste like it used to taste. And everyone went, yeah. well, that's better, isn't it? Apart yeah. from everyone quite liked it before. Yeah. So, yeah. I, anyway. So that, there's a great example of that of that exact thing in the beer industry. And that's a beer that almost every every brewer that I know would put this beer in the, one of their top five of all time. It is a beer called Orval. Oh yeah, of Travis beer. Yeah, they and I might get this date or date wrong, but in the eighties, say, and happy to be corrected. But at some point, they really modernized and they started propagating their yeast and cleaned up the whole brewery, put new tanks in, um, absentmindedly eliminating Britannomyces from their brewery. They didn't know it was there; that yeah. it was just this essence that all the locals and their customers started complaining was gone. Oh. And so the brewer there, uh, in their, in his wisdom or, or frustration went out to the fields and started making somehow starting to get yeast from his local area and inoculating different batches of his beer. And he started, he found, uh, Britannomyces that they add into their beer now. Uh, at bottle conditioning, and they hold their bottles for a few months, and then they sell them. And that is what solved that solved that problem. Wow! So, so instead of saying, "Well, we cleaned it up. It's so lovely. Live with it." Yeah. They said, "Isn't it so lovely? It's clean." Oh no, you don't like it. Let me fix that. Let me dirty it up. Right. With some botanicals. So in wines, there's some learning for me to do here. Um, I always um, was under the opinion that. Um, Wine that sat in barrel, particularly wine with quite a lot of residual sugar, so some of the higher sugar wine, particularly it was a problem in Australia, it was a problem with the Rhone Valley, sat in barrel in barrels in cellars which had Britannomyces in them, and that Britannomyces was influencing the flavour and giving you lots of the aromas that are here. Um, is it a fermenting yeast as well? Does it do the ferment too? And is that what you've yep. done here? So in this beer, there is a secondary fermentation that happens in barrel. Okay. Uh, and then there's tertiary fermentation happens in bottle. Right. Um, but uh, you, it is a, you can make a beer or a wine with 100% Britannomyces. Right. So yes, okay. it is a fermentation agent, I guess. Um, yes. It's one way to say it. Um, but uh, as if we get to the, um, 
pretendomyces will create character. Might not be the character you want, but it will create character regardless of fermentation. Um, it will uh, consume and evolve the environment, the aroma compounds of the environment that it's in. Okay. Um, so it can uh, not quite metabolize, but um, change the aromatic pathways of the molecules to I'm um, now getting way too scientific that I, that I should because I don't know I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be you, two, you two could be really yeah. geeky together yeah. don't worry that's can, I, can, I, can I just say that actually what's really interesting to me about this because I haven't tasted it for a while is that it has it has kind of like evolved and gone off in a slightly different direction from the direction I remember I remember it mm. being a kind of actually a more Belgian style a kind of really strong beer mm. and now it's it's actually fresher and more lifted and sour uh, in, in a way than it was. It's kind of like that sherry flavor really comes through. Um, yeah. Uh, but without any any cherries. Yes. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, thank you. You're, you're a master of this, Fiona. Uh, bring me back on track. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so how I say, we, Andrew and I set the brewery up so that we can discover this beer. Uh, when we first made this beer, as you say, it was a different product. It was very similar to yeah. this. It, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't as though it was a pale ale. It was very similar. But we had to start off with this concept of making this beer. We had to make uh, make the different batches of beer, put them into different oak barrels, allow them to age for a different amount of time, come back to them, taste the young ones, and taste the old ones before we could really set on, excuse me, um, set on the final flavor. Yeah. And this particular one, um, you can really get much more tartness from the, where the cherry plays a lot with almost like a balsamico type mm. character. Yeah. If you have a larger mouthful and it goes across your tongue, you kind of get that on the, I get it on the side of my tongue quite a bit, um, if that's the right place to t taste it. But, um, uh, you've got as a sour and wild beer or just like a winemaker probably you set out to make a wine you set out to make a beer but you don't really know what you've made for many months yeah. for many years maybe um, as another beer we will try which is a blend of one two and three year old beer and none of those three different batches of beer are complete it's only when they're blended together that they it really sings Sure. Um, but, oh, well, let's, yeah, let's try that. I, I think mm -hmm. the bits that are similar, similar to me, I mean, there's clear um, Britannomyces notes that you get in wine, which are those kind of meaty, savoury, spicy notes you mm -hmm. really get all over this. And then there's that balsamic kind of kick as well. Yeah. And there's a kind of a, a marmite note I get in here, which I think that's probably much more a beer related thing that you never find in wine. So I don't get that. What, 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 what's really striking me is the um, really striking convergence now between um, your your beer world, because I'm not all the beer world is like this, and the natural wine world. I mean, the, you know, I'm tasting this and I'm thinking, you know, this is like really not very far from sitting here and drinking a natural wine. Yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is fascinating. Uh, yes. and, and more so than it once was, because I think... Um, I think the, the two worlds have come together, they converge. I think a kind of band of sour beer lovers or or producers mm -hmm. are maybe, uh, well, well, we're not very closet about it, but we're, we're, we love natural wine. Mm -hmm. like if, if we go to a new city for a sales event or a beer tasting or something, you, I'm usually Googling, like, uh, where's a tiki bar or where's a natural wine bar? <laughs> where, where, can I get a tea, where can I get a cocktail? Uh, you know, uh, yeah. Or, well, uh, and I was going to join that up when I said earlier about do you, is wild black beer a category? And I was thinking about, you know, because natural wine feels like it is a category, but in a way it's quite hard to categorize. And I think it's mm -hmm. got the same, you know, I mean, it's found itself in this place. Which is quite hard to define in a sort of way. I guess the kind of broad stroke of the word "wild" is similar. In that, mm. in that What's interesting too is the way that um, I don't know the beer world is to me more adventurous than the wine world. I mean, it, you know, the extraordinary explosion of you know, whether you like the expression or not, craft beer, but um, of um, 
let's call them more adventurous beers, um, compared to wine, which is still quite, um, you know, quite quite conservative in a way. I mean, there are there are um, natural wines, but it's still really niche. Whereas, kind of, sour beer seems to be, you know, like beers like this seem to be everywhere now. But I think I think also that because I'm going to quickly defend wine. Oh, I haven't heard anything negative about wine yet. <laughs> because I feel like I, I feel like often that that it because you say it, if you say it like that, which I think is completely true, by the way. Um, you can think that therefore wine is full of people who are very conservative and very straight and not adventurous and not brave and don't have that um, level of experimentation that the beer world might have or maybe even the gin world might have, etc. Um, and all I would say in argument of wine, and you'll probably, I hope you agree with this, there is such an expenditure in wine in terms of outlay. There's also an incredible, obviously there's a whole year gap between the next batch. Um, the, the affordability plus... Um, of, of experimentation, plus the ability just to do it and have a go and then learn from it and then have another go. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know many winemakers in South Park World who will make 20 vintages in their lives. They get 20 goes. Yeah. 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 They don't have, let's try this this week. Uh-huh. That didn't work very well. Let's try this. And so, and that yeah, really is true. That is true. Yeah. 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 And I hear, heard that from students that go to uh, brewing school. Who don't you know? They they got into brewing school at Harry Watt University in Scotland, say, and they weren't necessarily beer lovers or fermentation lovers initially. It was just something they were interested in, or they got drawn into. Um, and they learn that in the because you learn distilling and brewing, brewing and distilling. Okay. And they learn that as a distiller, uh, it, hopefully they learn, or they might learn this um, is you get like one or two decisive moments in your career to make a change in if you're in like a larger distillery if you get even to that position to 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 decide to make a change in a in a recipe or in an aging process or a blending process yeah and so distilling is even worse and then they the next month they have a brewing class and they get to make a change every two weeks yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's exciting yeah so um, I mean I've, I've talked to champagne producers and said how do you become the chef to carve and a champagne producer and they said well you have to do 20 years as the number two and that's kind of you know yeah. so you spend 20 years teaching the person or learning then you get this gasp where you might be able to make one very small change and then you spend the next 20 years teaching the person that yeah. follows you on and then you carry on you know yeah. and I guess a lot of us who drink champagne are like it probably not going to quit, quit that system too much but I mean it's incredibly yeah. not dynamic it's not dynamic I mean there are changes which happen over a period of years aren't there like, like yeah. the lower dosages yeah. kind of like I'm a brute but um anyway I want to try the next beer which was um one you mentioned that was three different yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So what we're going to taste now is a beer called Cool Ship, um, which is named unceremoniously or very ceremoniously after a small bit of equipment that we have called a Cool Ship. Does all of your naming go on in quite a drunken kind of boozy session? Uh, no. Does that actually be a whiteboard room office thing? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you see, there's, there's even that. It's like a, a sense of like what goes on in the beer world is contrary to maybe what goes on in the wine world. Yeah. You know, even that, it's like beer world, that, that just sounded more fun. Yeah. Maybe more jolly, more hanging out. Yeah. But um, yeah, so no, it, no it, we take stuff very seriously, but at the same time, we don't take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> without, don't take ourselves. without going down a boring route, when you're a company like yours, and I'm, you know, two friends, colleagues get together and just just do crazy experimental stuff and go down a road. Yeah. And then you grow into what you are now, which is a very successful business. Is there, do you ever kind of look back and think, how do we? Oh, can you keep all that energy there, or is it hard? Or just the corporate growth curtail that, or you sometimes wish you just go back to a shed with a couple of barrels and play around. Yeah, um, for us there wasn't there wasn't ever that stage of a couple of couple of barrels in a shed. Yeah. Um, excuse me, the beer's already starting to rise. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think 
because I, both Andrew and I, um, we went into the beer industry uh, from a sense of passion and delight, but also a sense of this is an occupation. Um, We went into it that way. Um, We didn't move careers necessarily because we just needed to get out of a career. Um, And also since I was 16, I've been clocking in at a restaurant at eight in the morning, smelling all the strong smells, being responsible to make the soup of the day and, you know, whatever it was, creating all the mise en place and being able to create things. That was like, it's in the nitty gritty and the grind and the, the sack of onions that you've got to chop. Sure. Um, if you, you can't love that, yeah, yeah, you get to work. Yeah. And um, there's a guy who said to Fritz Maytag, uh, part of Maytag, the lineage of Maytag washing machines, a large company, he bought a brewery called Anchor, um, one of the key fundamental breweries of America's brewing revolution. And they asked him, what are you doing this for? Is this just a hobby? Because you don't need the money. You don't need the business. And he said, uh, well, don't do anything just for business. Don't do anything just for fun. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's something that's, I read that or I heard that somewhere. That was, that's always stuck with me. Yeah. Always follow your passion. See if that can pay your bills. Uh, but don't mix it up and forget that it pays your bills. <laughs> so show up, do the job, ship your work. Sure. Improve it next time. Yeah. Always focus on quality. And- Although our podcasts focus on the liquid in the glass, every bit as important to its pleasure is how it's stored, presented and served. Tanglewood create the finest cellar spaces. Open the door and you immediately know you are somewhere special. Beautifully crafted, ingeniously organised, every cellar is bespoke, built to showcase wines. The team at Tanglewood are the finest in the industry. Draftsmen and craftsmen working with the best materials and equipment available. And it's not just cellars. Wine fridges, glasses, everything down to the all-important corkscrew. Have a look at tanglewoodwine.co.uk for more or follow them on Instagram at Tanglewood Wine Storage and send a direct message to receive a 10% off code for all wine refrigeration and accessories. This is some... Yeah, this is quite, quite different, isn't it? Um, it's still got that um, lovely, tart, refreshing finish, but it's it's kind of more in the mainstream, this one, to me. It's like, okay. Um, yeah. Um, maybe it's not. Tell it's me very dry, dry, it. dry, isn't it? It'll be very dry. Um, definitely tart. Mm. I'll also just, as a small caveat, not to get distracted by this, but Brutanomyces doesn't create a significant amount of acid. The beers, some uh, probably the majority of the stuff that we're going to taste has acid, definitely, but that's come from Lactobacillus or Pediococcus. Okay. Not Britannomyces. It does create more acid than a standard yeast, um, but not, uh, wow, that beer's sour because of Britannomyces. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to make that distinction. Um, so if your wine is sour, uh, for the wine drinkers of this wine podcast, or, yeah. Uh, it's most probably not the Britannomyces. It's bacteria or the acid from the grapes. Okay. Um, uh, but this is... This is acidic. This is definitely acidic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely acidic. And and, it, and that's also where kind of wild beer can merge more into wine territory because we play with acids and yeah. residual sugars and tannins um, and structure. And right. the similar language... Um, we share some of the same language because beer language is, it can be a bit just contrary. Because acidity is not something I don't normally talk about with beer at all. I don't know why I don't, because it's not something I consider. But, and I guess, and then when you come into things like food matching, mm-hmm. you get this, you know, these tar acid lines and this kind of yeah. dryness. And you can, I'm, not, I'm just thinking, I'm yeah. so thinking pork here. <laughs> it's so lovely with them. Yeah, so it's like roast, roast, yeah, and, you know, and, and roast belly pork would be so nice. And one thing I'm getting some big kind of stone fruit apricot, mm. dried apricot mm. kind of character, which would be great, like pork with that mm. apricot compote type yeah. thing, you know, yeah, and so nice. really matching some complementary flavors, mm. but then also the acids cutting mm. through, mm. contrasting that, mm. acid, that fattiness. Mm. Um, but I get kind of these peachy apricot 
um, into that all. Um, so what's going on in this bottle? Just just describe it to us. Um, in flavor wise or, or well, just like you know how how is it made? I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, so in the brewing process, we uh, we have grain and hot water. You mix that together at a specific temperature. You can Google more details later, um, but because uh, that's the boring part. Um, and then we make this sugary liquid called wort, yeah. unfermented beer. We boil this wort. Um, that sterilizes it at that point, but it also kind of increases um, the color. It, it coagulates a lot of proteins. It kind of cleans up the liquid. Um, and from that stage on, it really diverts from modern industrial brewing because instead of going through a rapid fast uh, heat exchanger, we put it into shallow kind of paddling pools almost yep. called mm. cool ships. Mm. So that's why this beer is called a cool ship mm. or called cool ship, sorry. And it goes into these shallow, they're about uh, 18 inches deep um, and they, for oh, us. They're like lager nuts. Would they make lager? Is it lager? Well, no, that's like... Like when you go to um, somewhere where they like in the Czech Republic where they make lava. Yeah. I think it's like that. It's similar. I know what you're talking about. And that's more of like an open fermentation vessel. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a spot that you pretty much only cool the beer in. And once it's cool, once you can, um, I've read kind of you put your elbow in in the beer to see if it, you know, oh. makes you ouch or okay. <laughs> makes you scold you or you yeah. put your wrist your inside your wrist once it's that kind of temperature so 20 degrees then you um, allow it either naturally or uh, by gravity or pump it into your fermenting vessel for the in that time frame is usually to allow it to get to that temperature is usually about 12 hours okay. and that allows uh, if you're in the right environment that allows the natural yeast and bacteria that's kind of on the dust and this condensation in the room has filled up the ceiling and then dripped back in um, or come in on the cool night evenings wind from the orchards around us. That allows the yeast and bacteria from the local environment to start uh, to give a place to live. For So just quickly, is there a kind of, um, is there a terroir to your be it some, do you think it matters that they are actually made where they are in the country yeah. in in Somerset? Does it could they could you make the same beer in East Anglia, or would it would it be the exactly the same? Or? Yeah, I think it, it would not be exactly the same. Yeah, um, there is a terroir to our beer, but it, in beer, it's so wrapped up in process, equipment, um, the local environment. Mm-hmm. I think it. As terroir, meaning, can anybody else make this beer? Probably not. Can anybody else make a beer very similar to this? Uh, Yes. But it's not, the terroir isn't in the soil. The terroir is sometimes in our limitations, in in our our process, um, because our equipment, our yeast, our barrels, um, our barrel room, um, is more probably like our barrels, our air, our, uh, the orchards around us, as well as our barrel ring. Okay. Are probably mm-hmm. ma- most, maybe that's our terroir. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Sure. Um, really that's really interesting. Yeah. That's that's delicious. It reminds me of, um, you know, like, I, I almost like a, like if you had a German Riesling, but it was super trocken, you know, mm-hmm. like really dry, with really high acidity, but still with some lovely flavour in the middle of it. What was that wine, sorry? So a trocken German Riesling. But, so you get this kind of sweet fruit flavour, but it's it's so piercingly dry with that lovely line of acidity. It's kind of, mm. I, really, I really like that. Well, I have to, yeah. I think I need to, need to maybe tour. come and do a wine tour. Yeah. Or a tasting, maybe, maybe less extravagant than a yeah. tour. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, what I was going to ask you is also, in um, I, guess, I guess in a wine cellar, if you had some... Britannomyces in a corner of it, or you noticed it was starting to affect some barrels or whatever, the first thing you would do is pull those barrels out because you'd worry about the level of um, not infection or infiltration into the whole room. So eventually you create this kind of <laughs> abundant area of everything going on, mm-hmm. like a yeast heaven in there going on. Do you feel like that happens? I mean, 
it, you know, is in the end the environment. If you tried to make a, a beer which was completely clean in your cellar now, would you probably yeah. struggle because of the density of material? Uh, short answer: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have been able to. Um, um, we have been able to barrel age and blend a few different beers that do not show a significant amount of unintentional yeast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, meaning we controlled what we put in there, yeah. and we decided not to use some barrels because they they turned out to be very pretend. They turned out to be sour, and we didn't want that. Um, and we didn't put that bacteria in. Um, I'm thinking specifically around uh, a beer called Babs, which is a barrel aged, barrel aged blended stout. Okay, well, Babs, yes. and 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 <laughs> of course it is. Of course, <laughs> and, and that we really the sense of intrigue and like I remember one day talking to the head brewer that I was learning from at the beer factory, and he has a friend uh, and he, who a friend acquaintance who um, is like uh, the nose of famous grouse. Um, and he, he was responsible for making the blend. And I just thought to myself, where is that in beer? Where is the appreciation of the aroma or the appreciation of the blend? Um, if you can have a whole career based on blending only, can that, can we make something phenomenal by blending in beer? Yeah. Rather than just brewing a batch, it was great, amazing. Brewing a batch, not amazing, so let's rebrand it or let's throw it away. Yeah. But let's let's brew five different batches, maybe of the same beer. Let's put it in four different oak barrels. Let's do that across 12 months. And 12 months later, they're going to be different ages, different ages, uh, developments of flavor. What was held in the barrels before is going to influence differently. And now we're going to be able to blend a beer, start it in the same place, and make something brand new that you would never have been able to do. Does so that make sense? sense? Yeah, I suppose. I was just thinking why that's different. And I guess for wine and whiskey, the blending begins with an end goal of consistency. I mean, you could easily pull mm-hmm. that idea apart, but I think it does. Mm-hmm. You know, the difference between vintages, certain great for opening ahead of others weather pattern one you know i think mm-hmm. learning begins with that end goal with that and okay maybe that's easier to control generally in beer i don't know yeah don't know. it is yeah yeah um and that's part of the extraordinary element of using wild yeast yeah is your your end goal is not uh that's single clean least offensive to the most amount of people yeah that's not the goal of these beers. And that wasn't the goal of my life as a chef. It was to create unique experiences yeah. um, or beers that go with unique experiences. Um, it's very normal where everybody has an idea of when is appropriate to drink a beer. But that the, they're in everyday lives. But what about those real celebratory moments? It's not generally a thing that you reach for, for a beer. But I, I'd like to think, uh, and I know our, the aim and direction of a lot of the beers we make, is that making beers for those extraordinary moments, for those celebratory times, um, those paydays, those anniversaries, not just the football game or the Tuesday evening. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, there's, there's, there's room for both, isn't it? It's like, you know, if you make a parallel with food, you don't always want to go to a Michelin-style restaurant or always have a tasting menu or, you know, whatever, and go to somewhere for the experience. Sometimes you just want a meal or you just want yeah. to be fed in a comforting way. Um, so do, do, you, do you make beers that fit those moments too or kind of satisfy those moments too? Or are you really not as interested in that? Um, we definitely make those beers too. Mm-hmm. Unapologetically, mm-hmm. we we all at the brewery enjoy beer, mm-hmm. enjoy 
beers that kind of just uh, fridge fillers. Mm-hmm. Well, my favourite beer from yours, I mean, is actually Bibble, which great. Is, I love it. Yeah, it's one of like one of my favourite beers ever. I just absolutely just enjoy drinking it. I just think about it too much, but I really yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a bibbler. Yeah, Bibble in uh, an old Somerset Somerset dialect is someone who drinks. Oh. You can go to the go to the pub for it a bit. Work me out. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um, so this is someone drinking, which is not um, uh, an everyday beer. Um, no, it's not an everyday beer. But I'm loving it. What is it's, it? Tell it's, us. It's hardly a beer. Um, it's called terroir. It's called. Uh, it's not really for sale, so okay. this is not a sales thing. Okay. <laughs> really frustrate the listeners there. <laughs> yeah, this is um, this is a uh, uh, an experiment, um, just something done on a very small scale, where uh, we work worked with a local vineyard um, who grew terroir. I know, um, how do you pronounce it? Triumph de Alsace. Is that how you say it? Triumph. Triumph de Alsace. Yeah, I feel like I feel like we both should know what this means. No, it's a, it's a, it's a great variety. Was it though? Yeah, I probably should. Yeah, I should yeah. Yeah. Uh, who's the mastermind? <laughs> I, I just I just struggle with my favorites. Struggle with the pronunciation and all that. Anyway, that, so, yeah, this very very dark red fleshed grape. Um, he pressed it for us, um, and we received um, a few a few hundred liters of this. Uh, grape juice, um, and then we fermented it with our mixed um, culture, mixed uh, what we would call a mixed ale culture, saison culture, um, and then blended in unfermented beer. So, forty nine percent of this liquid is uh, grape juice, and fifty one percent is wort or barley. And so, I would say this is a hybrid beer. Um, this is experimenting. Um, so is this how is this how your beers start? Like, wow, why don't we do this? And you kind of play around with this bit, and then might this actually turn out to be something? Um, it very well could, and it has um, a version, kind of a version of it. Um, some uh, the few hundred meters that I mentioned, um, most of that went into a beer called Beyond Modus Six. Um, which our listeners can get if you want to send us a book. And that that is a beer that we always try to once a year. We take modus operandi. We we love it. We believe in it. But how do we go beyond it? How do we stand in our tradition, our method, and then get creative and take another step? So beyond modus six, which was this last year, um, we took. I think it's about. 12% of the liquid is grape juice. Is this grape juice? Okay. Um, this one particularly is the, the beef that version, yeah. so to speak. Um, and I was interested for you guys to taste this uh, as as wine focus. As wine, as mm-hmm. you know, what I've noticed is it's changed since you opened it. So when we first tried it, I, I, it, it to yeah. me it was more winey then, and now it feels more beery. It just feels like it changed. But when we first opened it, I said to you, it really had this like, almost like Negroni note on the nose. I could pick up almost smell like how bitters and this lovely redness yeah. around it. And now I'm getting more beer. Maybe it's just because we vermouthy. Yeah, but it was quite yeah. really vermouthy right at the beginning, particularly because mm. I get that kind of bay leaf, yeah, the spicy, yeah, herbal. Mm. Absolutely. It, I would say that's probably unique to the, the 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 yeast from the grape juice and the yeast from our and the fermentation. It's just yeah. delicious, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And there's no carbonation on this. Mm-hmm. Um, this was basically taken straight from the barrel mm-hmm. yesterday. Um, and we've done probably two beers that way and actually sold them that way, yeah. carbonation-free. Mm-hmm. Um, we just felt that the, the flavor and the character of the beer yielded better to be um, not bubbly. And that itself, uh, you know, our tagline is kind of drink wildly different. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the things is like, does it does it need to be carbonated to be beer? Not not really. It's not a key character. It's not, sure. a, it's not a grain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Going back to that. So um, I was just thinking, in the wine industry, um, 
we kind of look at people like you and think, oh, another competitor to our world. You know, and we live in a, a, a drinks world where people are drinking less. And on top of that, it seems to be incredibly, increasingly competitive. You know, it used to be that you just drank wine when you had dinner, mm-hmm. and now you drink a number of different things, or you don't drink at all. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, you know, so we look at all of these ideas coming into you know, you're, it's becoming incredibly competitive. That kind of that drinking sector is becoming mixed in a way it wasn't before. And I guess, do you see that as well? I mean, is it, do you see, I'm not, I guess you posit- positively gained out of that movement, but it's also, can you feel the yeah. competition coming back at you as well? Um, we definitely see that coming back. Um, in in that we, you know, there, there's larger volume beers that we make. People drink less of that style. Uh, you know, it's growing, but um, beer of authenticity, beer of quality and creativity, ones that tell story, um, one that people can connect to, tend to be the ones that um, that are thriving in our mind, in our what we see. Sure. Also, you mustn't, you know, I think you really need beers like that to make the transition. You mustn't see like I mean, particularly in the summer, you sort of see loads of people standing outside pubs, you know, they're all working beer. And I kind of always wonder how many of them, when they have friends around and they kind of cook a nice meal for them, do they put beer on the table? Yeah. So you kind of do need beers with this kind of added complexity, exciting story uh, element to kind of mm. break through that mentality that beer is just for after work mm. um, or watching, you know, watching a match. Yeah, we are unapologetically trying to break into the occasions where wine is yeah. dominant, where wine yeah. is dominant. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and I think that is a, I'm trying to get back to the core of that question that you asked, because I think it's really interesting. Um, and I don't, I, don't I, I think that's where the evolution and, and intrigue is as well in that, you know, healthy, Good competition spurs on innovation. Sure. Spurs on, um, maybe not. Maybe it's not spurring on growth in the area. Uh, you know, like the whole pie isn't getting bigger, but it's causing people to get their elbows out and maybe not just go, I'll make my wine the same as always. It's how, how do I get one up? Yeah. How do I up my quality, mm. up my consistency, or how do I make it more interesting? Um, and I think if we can, as producers um, and creators, if we can not look at that as a business issue, but look at that as like, how do I get the, the liquid better? How do I yeah. innovate on the liquid? Um, not for innovation's sake. So if you've got an amazing thing, keep it going. But for us, like if we've got an amazing thing, I don't want to change Bibble or a beer called Pogo right. just because it's competition. But maybe I want to make uh, everything we do and all these interesting things that we're tasting right now goes into everything we do yeah. on the other side, on the clean beer side, is what we say, dirty and clean. <laughs> I think I think it's uh, from from wine side as well. I mean, there was a, I was going to say there was a time it probably is still now where we didn't really consider in the industry that our drinker was your drinker, that the spirit we just that we just assumed that it was different drinkers for different occasions and. And now it's clear that it is the same drinker who's drinking this as who's drinking wine. And in a similar way to if you're a producer in, in France and you don't look at what the new world wine producers are doing and take it on board and realise that they're also drinking your wine and they're in the same competitive set and you can learn off them. In the industry of wine, we already recognise that as being foolish because you have to learn. We should look at your industry and you should look at ours and go, we're sharing a consumer here and the way we message and the way we talk and the way we mm. involve ourselves with them. Um, I think it's, it's silly not to, you know, well, I think we're all learning more for each other all the time, but it's, I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, it's an interesting area. With beer, the, the, section, the sector of beer that we're talking about now is still, though, the, the niche of the niche for beer. Yeah. Yeah. Out, out of the, the, the sector, the section of, of beer, maybe less than, or not maybe less than 1% of the beer drunk purchased is going to be, um, considered wild 
by the definition we talked about earlier. Um, so maybe another 20% is cask ale, and another um, big chunk, a huge chunk, would just be pale ale, and then half of it would be lager. So we, so we actually kind of have two customers. We've got people who wouldn't drink this, mm-hmm. and we have these customers who are we're sharing with. Yeah. So I think we kind of we almost both of the statements that you said we thought that there was two different customers, and now there's just one. I think we still have two different customers. There's the person who just drinks lager, and the person who just enjoys bibble or yeah. pogo, passion fruit, orange, and guava, pale ale, uh, and. And then there's the customer who is paying attention to the aroma, paying attention to the story, paying attention to the process. Um, the person drinking Bibble may very well not be interested in the process. Okay, one last question. I'll get yeah. already over time. So Fiona, let's plug her new book. It's just pulled a book out called What to Drink When You're Not Drinking. Is that um, right? How to Drink Without Drinking. How to Drink Without Drinking. Uh, mm-hmm. So how do you drink wild, drink wild beer without drinking? Yeah. Are you going to have an alcohol-free well-being? Yeah, yes. Uh, we are, I've, I've been working on alcohol-free stuff for a little while now, um, probably a good two years. Um, and annoyingly, it's not out already for dry January. But um, but we, I'm looking at uh, kind of the, definitely using fermentation. Um, and it's definitely also not from a beer. Um, but it has a drop of beer in it. Um, so it's less than 0.5% alcohol, um, and it is complex in, in the fruits that we use, but also looking at that comment that I said of everything we do here in the drinks that we just tasted, we put into everything we do in the sense we use um, this part of the acidity in this in the soft drink comes from sour beer. Uh, and also the so I would in the trials that I've done the I'll make a soft drink with just water and create fruits or herbs or spices um, and some and maybe add some sugar or put in some natural sugar of some sort and I'll do the exact same thing with a percentage of sour beer added to bring just only 0.5% 0.5% alcohol, and myself, for sure, but also everybody else who's tasted it, just kind of un, not able to ver- ver- verbalize it, chooses the one with the beer in it. Okay. It's just that little bit more complex, mm-hmm. that little bit more intriguing. Mm-hmm. It's this, what I liken it to is the Japanese tradition of cooking where you use a dashi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have a water, you put seaweed in it, mm-hmm. You take the seaweed out, it's not particularly seaweedy, mm-hmm. but it's full of something else yeah. called umami. Yeah. So looking at you doing that um, mm-hmm. and creating different sources of that umami and um, trying not to go too crazy on this stuff because that can polarize people, but um, using different fermentations, different yeasts. How exciting. So, a fermented so when, when, when can we expect this? Ooh. Uh, I think... Um, we're we're at a stage where it's just going on to our bar in Bristol um, at Wapping Wharf uh, on draft mm-hmm. um, sporadically sporadically the trials mm-hmm. um, what's, are, what's it called? Uh, wild and free wild and free yeah. wow lovely um, brilliant yeah. <laughs> and um, and it's, so it's just going on there's going to be a uh, uh, berry a fermented berry mm-hmm. um one on this weekend um and then we're looking to have cans um and some draft probably in the next month or so very cool well, that is i feel like we could talk for another hour we could we, we could yeah, but we can't <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you so much brett for coming along and the beers are just incredible as they always are um it's been a pleasure to talk with you Thank you very much. Thank you. Keep discovering, keep looking outside of all of our bubbles. You have been listening to Batonage, a wine podcast hosted by Fiona Beckett and Liam Stevenson. 
For tips on matching food and wine, visit Fiona's website, matchingfoodandwine.com, or to make, buy, or sell wine, check out Liam's company, globalwinesolutions.com or vineyard-productions.com.